Thanks for downloading show 115 of the C-Suite podcast, the eighth in our special series of episodes that we are recording in partnership with the European PR agency Taito and their own Without Borders podcast, where we are interviewing leaders of unicorn companies to find out about the key issues, pain points and challenges that startups face and how they can address them with a strategic approach to marketing and communications. My name is Russell Goldsmith, and once again, I'm co-hosting this unicorn interview with Taito's founder, Brendan Craigie, and joining us both online is Charles McManus co-founder, group CEO, and executive director of ClearBank, uh, the UK's first clearing bank in more than 250 years. Um, and they launched in 2017 and is already close to achieving unicorn status. So welcome to the show, Charles. Do you want to start by giving us a quick overview of the business and, and also what it actually means to be a clearing bank? Yes, absolutely. And delighted to be with you uh, in relation to this podcast. So yes, I was very fortunate to meet our co-founder of the business, who was Nick Ogden. A number of your listeners may know Nick in relation to founding WorldPay. He also founded Cashflows. And Nick was way back 2015-16 thinking about there was the arrival of the new retail banks like Atom and Metro and others, and obviously the ones that everyone knows today in relation to Starling and Monzo. But he was asking himself the question of, where was the new infrastructure clearing bank? And um, without being too technical, just for a moment, essentially, if you are one of the regulated financial institutions in the UK today, so you're a credit union or a building society or a bank or an e-money license holder, you need to clear your payments through the UK payments platform each day. And traditionally, you've gone to a clearing bank to do that. There used to be 16 clearing banks in the UK. And through market consolidation today, they're essentially only the big four. And so from Nick's idea, if you have the latest tech in terms of Microsoft, Azure and cloud, and you actually provided the same service in real-time payments, then you could bring a whole different experience to those regulated FIs and compete essentially against the big four in relation to looking after your chaps and banks and fast payments and checks and all of that good stuff in relation to a new world. As Nick quoted in relation to the original slogan that you have as well in relation to the first new clearing bank in 250 years, that shows you how long it's taken for someone to take the idea and turn it into reality. So we're very privileged to actually hold that position uh, and now offer clearing services to all those financial institutions. And so as you will have gathered, we are a B2B proposition. We don't actually face consumers in terms of a B2C, but all our services make the difference in relation to consumers ultimately being able to make real-time faster payments at all. And I guess, Charles, just that, that sort of begs the question, why has it taken so long for the UK to have a new clearing bank? What a great question. It really is a good question. And of course, inevitably, when you're talking about infrastructure or the pipe work that actually payments actually go through, that's the boring. It's the back end. Everyone loves the latest app in terms of something I can get on the app and it can give me this amazing experience. No one thinks about when you click and you make a payment, a faster payment, or you set up a direct debit, what actually happens at the back end? Do you just want your cash to appear wherever you've sent it? And so it's not very sexy, right, the infrastructure end of it. But in the new fintech world, it's actually the empowerment of all of those brilliant fintechs and new people doing new things without the back end actually being real time and all the sexy tech. Actually, it would ruin the whole experience. I think the answer to your question is everyone goes where ultimately is the consumer rules 
and you all want to get to the front-end retail in terms of, of making a difference, that actually the back-end is less exciting and interesting, albeit actually it's fundamentally important in relation to the whole proposition. And so I think it's really just been that focus where retail has sort of ruled SME, the infrastructure side is, has been neglected, but actually is, is the most important part. And that's really what our opportunity has been all about in that it is new. There aren't a lot of people that are actually doing it. We wanted to be a first mover in relation to that change and help fintechs essentially enable them to then disrupt financial services at the front end. And as a vision, it's been really exciting in terms of the journey we've been on, and we'll talk about it even through COVID-19, of enabling our customers to really make a big difference in servicing their customers through even pre-COVID, but now very much during COVID, where obviously there's been such a big shift in relation to use of cash and checks and actually switching onto contactless and digital rails. That has all played into the need for real-time, low human touch, faster payments. That's exactly the service that we provide. Charles, I mentioned in in the uh, intro that you're close to achieving unicorn status. Are you able to give an update on the current funding levels? Well, I can, and we don't, uh, we all be a, a private company and we follow our standard accounts and we're very open and transparent in relation to our customers and contacts of our financial position. Clearly, it's an aspiration of ours to become a unicorn, grow a very sustainable, real business, essentially, rather than a flash in the pan in relation to fintechs or a fad or whatever. We've been actually growing it very sustainably, successfully, and managing our growth. And we're on our way in terms of going up the J-curve in relation to valuation. We have two billionaire shareholders that have been our main provider in relation to funds and have been awesome in relation to as we've burned through our capital as a loss-making initial startup, now moving through to a, a, a regulated bank. And we've got a very clear path to profitability. And as we've done that, essentially, our valuation, internal valuation, has continued to increase. And we're discussing with our investors, essentially, widening that investor base. But to answer your question specifically at the moment in relation to the total funding in relation to CT1 Capital, it's in excess of about £150 million of the main two billionaires plus our minority shareholders, including management and the executive that are actually funded. So it's at that level with ambition to continue to do more. And we've got wider expansion plans in relation to the Europe and indeed US dollars and others that will require additional capital funding. But that's the best I can answer without disclosing more in relation to um, more will come as we go up that. But we're very uh, fortunate having two billionaire shareholders that very much have backed the business to date, and we presume will continue to do so in the future. That's fair enough. Well, I appreciate you giving us some of the some of the insight. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> I think you, you kind of noted there, Charles, that it's been a, a challenging year, and one aspect of that has been COVID-19, and we're going to come on to that. But I guess in the background, we have the Brexit negotiations, and they seem to be very much back on the, the news agenda at the moment. And we're just curious to know, you know, what, if any, impact is that having on your business? Do you, are there any kind of special preparations you need to be making as a clearing bank? Another great question. And it's a complex environment for those that are involved in financial services and the word passporting in relation to sort of passporting rights, where in financial services, essentially within Europe, everyone can passport with the right regulatory approvals to operate in all the European countries. 
Of course, post-Brexit, that all changes. Um, the, the Bank of England and PRA have been doing a lot in, in allowing overseas banks to actually operate in the UK and to the extent of us looking at how we operate in relation to the EU. That's been on every UK bank's agenda for a, a number of years now. So there are still a number of uncertainties in relation to whether we can service some of our European customers that have operations in the UK, whether we can continue to service them post 31st December. And we're helping them in relation to actually ensuring they've got all of their passporting rights in the UK, that we can do that. For those that don't, and going back to their respective countries within the EU, we're actually looking at how we service them in relation to our presence within Europe. And uh, it's no secret that we've been looking at setting up a European operation to do exactly that, almost irrespective of Brexit. And indeed, we've recently had uh, further board and strategic discussions with our investors in terms of, of those plans. And we still very much have plans in place in relation to setting up a, a European entity, which will be an equivalent in relation to Clearbank. And so we will have a European entity and a UK and be able to service both UK and European clients uh, seamlessly under the right jurisdictions. So it is no question a challenge in relation to the preparations. I think banks have uh, overall have done a really good job in getting prepared. But undoubtedly, like year 2K and, and other major milestones have changed, there will be issues in relation to people not being able to trade or uh, continue their business without the regulatory approvals. But I think most people are in good shape. I think it's thereafter the opportunities and the equivalents on passporting of how the ECB and the Bank of England and PRI, FCA with the others actually match up in relation to the UK not being treated as a third world country in terms of Europe on an equivalent basis and being able to carry on and do financial services businesses or business seamlessly across the borders. And I think that's where we all watch Boris and the government, is this going to be a hard or soft landing in terms of what's coming up? And on a wider economic basis, I think that's the aspect we concern more in terms of where UK PLC will be as compared to where Clearbank and our clearing business will be, which, which should be in good shape. But we want to make sure we've got maximum opportunities of our SMEs and all obviously the business community in relation to the EU market going forwards. And I think that's the, the big unknown that we need to get sorted out because, as we all know, businesses, it's hard enough in C19, uncertainty is does not help economic growth. And so the removing of that around Brexit, we need to get done as fast as possible. We're just picking up on that COVID-19 issue. I mean, what impact has coronavirus had on, on your ability to move the business forward? We've been really fortunate. You know, I'm, uh, we'll come later on, perhaps the leadership and the rest are being able to show empathy and the whole culture of the bank in relation to the human aspects of what's happened uh, in the UK and the world. Absolute tragedy in relation to some of the things that have actually happened in people's human lives. But in relation to Clearbank, we've had an amazing run. So we went a week before lockdown in, in back in March. We've got 259 employees in the UK and everyone went on to remote working and we've continued to be uh, working from home right back from that week in March, albeit we have opened our Bristol and London offices to those that wanted to go into the office in the last few weeks. And we've had seven and eight people in, in terms of locals that have actually gone into our offices. And again, if we're going into many lockdowns, we'll look at whether we, we leave those open. 
But of our 259 employees, they've done an amazing job in working from home. Being a latest cloud tech-enabled bank, remote working has been uh, second nature to all of us. We've onboarded new employees. We've furloughed no one. We've onboarded six to seven new financial institutions each month throughout that whole period. We've had record volume weeks. We've had record onboarding, and we've got tremendous momentum in the business. And indeed, part of the challenges we've had, if you think uh, of our tech teams, for example, the average age of 25, is actually educating them and looking after their well-being of not sitting in front of a screen at home for 14 hours, whereas at least traveling to work, coffee machines and, and going and getting a sandwich at lunch, naturally it breaks up the day. And teaching people how to look after themselves and not burn out through remote working. Those are some of the challenges we've actually had with our workforce, rather than furloughing and, and essentially worrying how we get, we're going to make a revenue and keep the uh, pay the electricity bill for ne- next week. So we, we've been very, very fortunate in terms of what we've done, but it's really down to the team and our tech that's enabled us to actually operate that way. Yeah, just picking up though on what you're saying about the success is, do you have to balance the you know not shouting too much about that in in the current climate or you know because of ah. how many businesses are suffering and and industries are suffering is is there a balance between saying how successful you are and and being sympathetic or empathetic to other companies? Absolutely, I think anyone who's seen some of my previous podcasts or sort of comments. I talk a lot about culture of the bank, and I was privileged at the start to, to help try and build that cliche words in relation to culture, but try to make them real in relation to transparency and honesty and integrity and telling it the way it is and all of that, of trying to live that within the firm. One of the things that I feel very strongly about is sort of egos and, and arrogance. And I think one thing I cannot stand is is any form of sort of arrogance. And therefore, to answer your question in relation to how good we are and look what we've done, absolutely not. The whole of our premise is we've always got so much more to do to improve. How can we service our customers? And we're honoured to have the customers we have. And that's the approach we take in relation to anyone who shouts from the rooftops of how wonderful they are, in my mind, are only going one way together with either the, the company jets or, or the others in terms of selling stock. You know, that's not how ClearBank operates. We've still got a lot of ambition, a lot of vision that we want to do. And to the extent of this constant learning of how we can get better in terms of resiliency and servicing our customers, that's very much the ethos. So you're quite right. It is a balance and we celebrate our successes as a team. But at the same time, we keep our feet very firmly on the ground in terms of we're only as good as the payments we settled yesterday and we will tomorrow. And that is very much part of our culture. I think that humility and that focus on your culture comes through very clearly, Charles, in I think in everything that we've seen you say within um, articles and you know what's on your on your company website and things. How do you go about Im- embedding that culture into your business? What's your approach to doing that? Another great question. And really, it obviously, it starts. We've had a very fortunate position that we've built it from, from scratch. Like our tech, we've got no legacy IT, right? Our COO, Nigel Walder, who's worked at all the large banks and the rest, every time he talks to the community of saying what a privilege it is to have no legacy and try and keep it that way. We were able, therefore, to build the culture from scratch. 
And certainly in my 35 years around investment banks and retail banks and wealth management, I've seen the good and the bad and the rest. And so in taking up this mantle, we as an Exco team essentially defined our values and how we wanted to operate the bank in a very modern fintech flat structure and the values that we all feel are very important. And obviously, in being a regulated financial institution, having a banking license, we also wanted to mix the fintech creativity and innovation with mixing that with, if you like, the senior manager's regime and all the rule book of being a bank. Those two aren't necessarily complementary. We've tried to make them so, but rules and restrictions may restrict that creativity and innovation. And we've had a really big challenge within the bank to actually get the best of both worlds. But the embedding point, it starts from the top in terms of that team. We don't want to keep recruiting people that are like us and that we want all the inclusion and our diversity, but we want them to share the same values, but actually think and act and everything else be very different and unique in what they bring to the party, but buy into sharing those values. And I do a talk, for example, of every new joiner and a CEO lunch, just talking for an hour in terms of those values, experience and what matters. And through reinforcement of, of essentially our code of conduct, which sounds sort of old-fashioned and, and very big bank, but reinforcing those every day, whether it's stand-ups amongst the team or our virtual pub quizzes or charities or downtime or hackathons or the way we operate management uh, committees or indeed at board, it's reinforcing those behaviours and actually trying to get rid of those, the ones that we don't like in terms of bureaucracy or people won't make decisions, or people don't tell it the way it is and, and, and it's fluff and bluff and whatever. What are the facts? Make a decision, iterate and go. And so, you know, everyone talks about culture that, you know, you can't be in a rule book, you've got to live it. You've got to try and live it and make it real. And that's what we've tried to do and then reinforce it as you get bigger. Because as you get bigger, it gets harder to maintain all those things we love in relation to small teams and, and innovation and speed of decision-making. The more people and the more clever people you get, the more opinions you get, it slows all that down. And, you know, we're going through those pains in trying to make sure we retain the things we love as we grow. And that comes from strength and depth throughout the whole organisation, not just from what I may say at the top or what I value. It's top to bottom of everyone actually trying to live it day to day. Have you found doing that now you've been operating remotely for a length of time? Is that have you kind of had to develop some like new techniques to communicate your culture? Have you been managing that? Yes, we have. Uh, gosh, what a challenge. And a challenge for everyone living on Teams and Zoom and WebEx, SL, in the productivity going higher and efficiency of the number of meetings, but you lose all the social interaction. You lose that sort of welcome of the lift and the small talk around the whole meeting and interaction and talking to people and all that physical aspect. And the longer it's gone on, that certainly has become more of a challenge in relation to become, you know, each meeting is sort of work-focused. And so you're quite right. We've had to invent a whole load, as a number of other great companies have too, in relation to, well, we, we have a stand-up every Thursday at five o'clock for the whole bank. Various Exco members or I will talk out various different topics We've carried on doing that virtually of everyone on Teams, but then we've supplemented that with the likes of virtual pub quizzes of 
virtual hackathons, even to the extent of virtual gyms and yoga classes and all those sorts of things to try and get people to interact. And in the last few weeks and months, we've been doing something like the rule of six and various others, going to people's patios or one-on-one performance appraisals of going to someone's house to actually do it and creating that interaction. But it is, it's a real struggle. Again, our board meeting and offsite, we did a virtual strategy offsite for two days. We would have had board dinners, Exco mixing with our investors and boards, all that social downtime space where you talk about how's your family or how you're feeling or what's going well and not as compared to, right, we're talking about this. You have to work really hard at creating those forums. And, and again, we've also used surveys in relation to all of our people uh, extensively, which again, people can view sort of negatively, but really trying to get people to speak up of how they're feeling or their mental health or loneliness or what, what you know what makes a difference of what they need and looking after them and my HR team and Exco team have done some really great work on listening and how we can actually change things as it's become evident this is going on longer and longer so those that didn't have proper workstations and were flat sharing and, and operating out of their bedroom you know not just the practical aspects but also help in relation to all the helplines and, and well-being and, and classes and whatever so tremendous challenge and not easy to do it well. Uh, and whatever you've done, you've always you've got to keep doing a load more. And particularly the longer this goes on. No, it's lovely to hear everything that you're doing. I think for me personally, I think my observation I have is that with remote working, it's like you say that you kind of you can start in the morning and you can work on right through the evening and you don't have the sort of punctuation marks that you would have in a normal day you know like what like you say you don't have the full stops that mean you kind of take a bit of a break and I think without those things it can be very draining and so you do need to find those kind of ways to pause and just I don't know just lighten the the tone a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I had a one-to-one with our head of onboarding actually yesterday morning, and I obviously try and, well, it's only 259, but actually get to the so-called shop floor, although we don't have one in relation to where the real work gets done and the real action. And um, Jonathan was saying to me, in the morning they have their check-in as a team and they do all of that. They also have one at sort of three, four o'clock for half an hour, and they don't talk about work. They talk about other things for that half an hour in the afternoon of how they're feeling, anything to do with sports or anyone can talk about anything, and then they'll have five minutes checking about work at the end. And I thought that was a great idea where they deliberately, in the afternoon, they will just have a free format, bring a cup of tea and just have a chat about anything. And it's really important, you know, it brought it home to me that you know, I don't do enough of that. Yeah, I like <laughs> the idea of the afternoon cup of tea. What One of the things that we saw you quoted on was sort of talking about some of the, I guess, the bad reputation the financial services sector has got in terms of maybe seemed to be like a machismo culture. And I think it's kind of interesting because we've seen the tech industry has kind of suffered from similar attacks recently in terms of, the culture in the Silicon Valley and, you know, and I think that's come under similar criticism. I just wondered, how have you protected ClearBank against that that kind of culture? Oh, so fortunate or not or crazy to actually live through the financial crises and, and work in investment banks. And I grew up at Hambro's at the, the bearings crisis when Nick Leeson blew up bearings in relation to 
his Singapore activities and the rest and saw what happened there. And obviously the last financial crisis in relation to MBS and the whole uh, debt in the US and contaminating the balance sheets of banks throughout the whole world and, and, and that turning into a financial crisis, the rest. But, but apart from that, actually seeing at the end of the day, this, you know, it's numbers, banking, it's people. And obviously, to the extent of trading floors in particular, where I grew up, of A types and the stereotypes in relation to all of that. And I worked with a number of those. And you learn a lot fast. You learn about how clever people can be and why the world had to change in relation to, if you like, bullying behavior and just calling it out that someone can make £50 million a year in relation to it, but actually as an individual doesn't know how to behave, doesn't know how to treat uh, other people. That's being looked upon as acceptable because of, of, of the amount of money that they've actually made and then what happens in terms of the size of their bonus. You know, is there a surprise there's an issue with the city and bankers and bonuses with all of that and behaviours that then flow from it? So in that sense, bankers have brought it on themselves the world has changed, right? So, you know, I go back to Hamburg. There used to be sort of seven different grades of staff restaurant, depending on your status and hierarchy. You know, Clearbank has no hierarchy whatsoever. I, I don't have a large office. We all sit together. It's not about our titles. So I think the answer, long answer to your question is, having seen some of those behaviours of, of sort of arrogance and bullying and it's going to be my way or no way, of adapting that in terms of, of a fintech innovative culture and all about team, that it is so much about team. Put a customer together with all the functions in the bank and take and iterate and almost put them in a, a padded cell for weeks on end and, and, and evolve something. Something back great has got to happen if you've got the right mentality of it. And that's so much better than having sort of the management on the seventh floor and you know, all the other businesses are one, two, and three, and they, they only get called up to the seventh floor, you know, when they've done something wrong. That doesn't breed innovation and creativity. And as you can tell, it's something I'm quite passionate about. So in terms of those behaviours, we've tried to root out those, those type behaviours of that's not team, basically, in relation to the old cliches of um, the way we want the bank to operate. And I've been very keen in trying to lead the bank, leading by example, that I will not tolerate those behaviours and no one else should. And that's how we've basically grown the culture within the bank. Just picking up on, on what you were saying there about innovative culture and where would you say you've seen the greatest innovation in, in banking and financial services? Well, I think the UK fintech scene in, in coming onto it or coming into it in 2016 and 2017 of obviously big tech in relation to, to the US. But in the UK, you know, we've got one of the best fintech industries there is. I mean, it, it's quite incredible when I got involved, and I, uh, to the extent of, of uh, having been in large banks all my career, of watching the fintech explosion. And again, credit to the, the PRA and the Bank of England and the PRA FCA having a competition part of their mandate and the new banks development that the PRA have of looking at the number of new banks that's come through, including the Starlings and Monzos and obviously ourselves and continue to be the, the, the case. The UK has really been fantastic in relation to all of that. But there's a number of other areas around the world equally. Israel is another great example where they have got an amazing fintech scene, not one that, that shouted loudly, but anyone who knows the world in relation to 
all the support that they've been given, also their regulatory environment. The Netherlands is another good example, and others that don't have that mandate in terms of either their central bank or their regulators find it very, very hard in terms of of encouraging and, and thriving and regulating and bringing through new regulated fintech businesses. Um, And Ireland is a good example of that, where they had the financial crisis, the Central Bank of Ireland does not have a competition mandate and found it very hard to embrace essentially new digital banks regulatory, albeit their government wanted Ireland to be, or the former government, open for business and new jobs. You have to have it all aligned to create that overall environment for those uh, fintechs and the rest to actually um, thrive and survive and go on and strengthen. Um, But I I think there are some really good pockets around the world, but I think there are also some great opportunities in the US and elsewhere where obviously Asia has has led very strongly across the West in relation to still much more development if, of course, C-19 and, and, and the recession doesn't actually kill off some of that in the short term. Yeah. You, you mentioned a, a few businesses, Monzo, Starling. Do you, do you speak regularly? Do you collaborate at all? <laughs> uh, I like that question, actually, in, in that, um, so, of course, we are, if you like, they can be our customers. So I'm not competing directly with, with the likes, essentially, of, of, of Monzo and a number of others or Revolut, and that potentially they, we can service them in relation to payments infrastructure short answer is yes we do of course whether it's the pra ceo annual conferences or a number of uh, of events and from starling essentially would be on podiums we, we, we have been together tom i've got to know quite well in relation to the the crew that if, if you like originally formed monzo from the the issues that that they have with sort of starling yes there is a, a network but it's all totally professional in relation to for those that were directly competing against each other, it's a very healthy professional relationship. But yes, of course, we talk to each other and we interact with each other. And I'm pleased with the relationships that we have in relation to the UK scene and others where, you know, the landscape is there and we can compete. The issue has been the fintechs and the loss-making banks against the big four as COVID-19 has come in. Is that a level playing field? And that's a whole other topic where, Essentially, the flight to quality and, and funding rates uh, regulation, does it go bias back in the favour of the big four rather than the newcomers when things get difficult? And certainly, we've aligned in relation to a number of those initiatives where we feel there should be more support from, from the fintech through difficult periods in relation to it. So that's certainly areas where we've, we've aligned in terms of arguments to the regulators and the Bank of England. Yeah. And sticking with the whole COVID climate, I mean, we can assume that there's a lot of CEOs will be grappling with how, you know, to build their business in this current economy. I mean, what's your take on this? And are there any things that are working especially well, you know, for you? I think undoubtedly, people will have recognised that, that obviously the risk off and the credit environment actually tightening. I mean, it's easing slightly, but capital and funding investors and actually using their capital. FinTech is consuming a tremendous amount of capital in terms of new capital. And if you can't get that, then essentially we've seen a number of FinTechs that actually have got to stop and they may have run out of money and cannot get that investment. Therefore, we took actions of tightening our belts in terms of costs and also, if you like, capital conservation. 
that's being responsible in running a, a loss-making, fast-growing business that actually you take those actions regardless and don't become complacent in relation to your investment or investors and funding. So it is like any tightening or financial crisis or anything that happens in nature, you know, the weakest don't survive. And therefore, you've got to be additionally agile and strong and take the tough decisions to actually get through and become sustainable. And so my advice certainly would be take the responsibility style at home in terms of owning your own risk, owning your own cost base, be ruthless in relation to the success of your proposition. And if you've got the conviction and belief and you've got the team and the proposition is sound, you'll find that investment. But it's really hard and you've got to fight hard and you've got to be, as I said, ruthless in relation to whether it's working or not. There isn't room. Yes, you want passion and emotion, but you also need really harsh financial common sense. And if a proposition is actually not going to stand up long term, you will not find investment for it change tag and find one that does. So this has obviously been a time for strong leadership. And I'm just curious to understand, how do you see your role as an external spokesperson and representative of the company? And and has that kind of your perception of that role developed over time? So much has been written on leadership and um, a topic that, that I'm personally sort of interested in It's fine when things are going well and customers are happy and you're making money and want to be slightly more complacent or management teams are. And a lot's been written in relation to you should be managing as if you're in a state of crisis when you're not. Because on the basis you're not, you're actually, it's only a matter of time before things are are actually going to go wrong. And so being on your A game, bring your A game to work every day as a mantra is something that is very hard to do. It's like Premiership League football in terms of consistency. Can you play at a level of intensity on a a consistent basis? I certainly try to do that. But I I think coming back to to your question, yes, I enjoy being a spokesman of the company, but it should never be about one individual. So my ex-go team in relation to Nigel Walder and Simon Jones and others carry the load too in terms of, of other panels and external views it's showing the strength and depth of the company in relation to it's not a one-man band and any leader knows you're only as good as the team behind you and all those other cliches. Well, it's true. So, yes, in relation to that presidential messaging communication role, really, really important. And, yes, we've done more of it, if you like, as we've, we've had something to say. And so in the early stages, it was much more inward-looking in relation to actually getting the proposition to work, servicing those customers and let the product speak for itself. I've never been able to be very good in in relation to software salesman of of software can do everything and and that sell. The product has to do the sell and then you need the trust and integrity of the people around it that actually you do business with those. And that's very much the model in relation to if I'm doing too much in terms of speaking, then that's not a good thing. It's got to be the product doing the speaking, not, not the management team. The other aspect of it in terms of leadership skills and very important in COVID-19 has been empowering down faster decision-making and not let the top sort of uh, suffocate the business and let your people shine. Let them come through, empower them, give them the direction, but let them go, put the checks and balances and monitoring around that. 
And to me, that's what leadership is about. Not all about me. It's about them and growing and creating that team and alignment to let them do their thing in relation to it. And to me, that's that's what I take most pride about. Not how good I am as a presenter. In fact, I'm, you know, I'm constantly trying to improve in relation to presentation and communication. So those would be my uh, my comments in relation to your question. And just picking up on the point about communication, you say that it's something you've had to work at. I was just curious, you know, whether you, whether you were a, a natural communicator or you've had to kind of formulate a plan to get better. <laughs> It's interesting, again, because uh, another, if you like, big bank issue over the years of going back in my career where you used to have to focus constantly on your appraisals and weaknesses. Got to work at your weaknesses, you know, ignore, ignore your strengths and just, you know, focus. You're not very good at this, this, and you must work at it. And, of course, as modern leadership theory is, has grown up of, of you can't teach old dogs new tricks and all those cliches, No, 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 you need to focus on your strengths and exemplify those and be cognizant of your weaknesses and development points. No one one can now talk about weaknesses. It's all challenges and development points. And so answering your question, I've um, always wanted to develop more in relation to public speaking and communication and do better. But I think there's a base level, getting on with people whatever the level is, and being able to talk to them in an authentic way on their level, whatever that level is, I think is so important in terms of of communication and sort of leadership and being in touch. And that gets all the way through to political awareness and EQ and body language and saying the right thing or the wrong thing at the right time. We all try and do that. It's very, very hard to do. And you see the politicians in terms of the stress they've been under of saying the right thing or wrong thing or, or whatever it is. And we get it wrong, but you've got to learn to do that and be authentic as part of, part of that process. I think the final comment I would make is you can get lost in facts. The ability to storytell and make sense of it all and then interject the facts is something a lot of us as leaders actually try to do. Can we relate and tell that story and interject the facts rather than lose the audience in terms of sort of boring, dull, boffin-like facts in terms of not being able to put it together. Storytelling, and that's not fake news or anything else, of authentic storytelling with interjection of facts, I think is something that that is is a real skill as a leader. And what about from an internal comms perspective? So you're talking about being an external spokesperson. How, How do you navigate this need to communicate with individuals, with teams, and and then the entire company, particularly, you know, with so many people obviously working remotely. And I know you touched on before, you're on numerous calls with Teams and Zoom and, and WebEx and, and, and every other video platform. But how are you managing to get across those issues? Again, it's another challenge on the basis of making sure it's at the right time, it's relevant, and we take enough time to get it right. And obviously, in a fast-paced moving environment, of tripping up some of those and making sure you're still connected to the people that really matter. And I like to talk about doing the real work, so important. And so whilst innovation and, and agile and all of that, people are used to change, the majority of us still don't like change, right? It's something, it's, it's either hard work or it's something different and we've got to think about it. And, and, you know, we want everyone to love that and embrace it. People have opinions and, and doing all of that. So we work hard as an Exco team, 
in thinking about the impact in relation to making a change and communicating it and understanding how people will react to it and not over-rotating in relation to that, but making sure we've all thought about it. Because what we may think about it, obviously the receiver of any communication is different from the person that's actually delivering the message. So we put a lot of work in in trying to think through all the angles and from their perspective, what is it they want to hear? What do they need to know? Are we giving them the right tools and information in doing that? And we don't get that right all the time, but we work very hard at it to make sure put yourself in the position of the receiver and don't get lost in this is the message we must tell them and this is what they need to know and, and, and the rest. To make it land, it's got to be understandable like any communication in terms of the receiver. And so we work really hard at delivering that and in the right forums and one-to-ones and the social setting, as well as the work setting and reinforcement of the messages. It's hard work to do it well. It really is. Yeah. And you've touched on a number of challenges in in this conversation, but what would you say has been the biggest communications challenge that you've ever faced? I think to keep everyone... So so the teams, uh, the biggest feedback we've had is we're really missing the social interaction of being together we can create that on teams and and everyone have have a lot of fun of looking at people's pets and their decor or their bookcase in the backgrounds or the different clothes that they're wearing of getting to know each other in terms of, of the different settings but the thing that most of the team yearn for is actually to be together with their team and we've not and it sounds so obvious, but we've done smaller groups and whatever, but we're used to being all together in a room and having got a drink or whatever and and, and having a, a teaching or a stand-up on a topic or someone talk about something they've done with a client or sharing and that interaction. That's the one that we've, we've got to work really hard on. And indeed, looking forward in terms of property footprint and is this you know going to be a lasting change? People have enjoyed the remote working. And we'll do that for one or two or three days a week. But we need space where for the other two days a week, we can actually get together as a team. And what space do we need to do that? That's not all just workstations for everyone. It's a different type of space. And we've got a team looking at that for us on on a go-forward basis to to get that balance of a go-forward basis to address the sort of social interaction, the physical interaction in relation to sort of people going forward. And I don't think we've cracked that yet. And through the course of this conversation, Charles, I think we're on to our like penultimate question. You've shared a lot of lessons that you've learned over the years, which part of the reason why we're doing this series is to kind of pass on lessons to other kind of aspiring CEOs. Um, I was just curious, what's the best piece of advice that someone's ever given you as far as communications is concerned? Well, some of my team will will know this already, and a number of cliche sayings, but again, we try to live them. They hit home with me, and of course, I've used them within the bank in relation to uh, some of the things that I think are really important. One of the examples, right, again, overused and uh, misabused, like the word strategy of of everyone using that, for example, but again, a former boss of mine that, that used to take me around the investment bank at bonus time. And used to say, everyone, Charles, is working so hard. I'm sick and tired of everyone telling me how hard everyone is working at this time of year. What we need to know, Charles, is who are the people that are actually moving the needle? Who are the people that are actually making the difference in this organisation? 
And normally it's 20, 25% or 30%. Those are the people that we need to make sure we're really looking after and actually empowering them and rewarding them and giving them the challenge work to actually drive the organization forward. That's just one example, again, very obvious, but from the point of view of the needle, moving the needle expression. I think the the answer to your question is, is another one in communication skills, which again, in terms of dealing with more senior people as you're growing up, and uh, no no commentary, you have to be terribly PC in relation to religion or uh, or any topics. But I used to the the drill that I had is you've got five minutes with God, right? So that's all you have. And going and seeing a senior person, you go in and you've got five minutes. What points are you going to make in your five minutes? And you mustn't come out and walk down the street and saying, if only I'd said X or Y. So the succinctness, the clarity, and actually the importance, develop that skill that you've only got X time in relation to making your messages. What are the messages everyone's got to hit home? So the the five minutes with whoever it is are the most important with your life of, of making those messages. That'll help your communication skills of focusing on the true things you want to say and why you want to say them. And no regrets. You never have regrets. That's very good. This this kind of this this final question kind of leads on from that. I think we said before we started recording, you know, that we'll be about 45, 50 minutes. I think we've been spot on. So so well done for that, Charles. You you've uh, kept to our timing perfectly. <laughs> so so on our final question, and, and this is something we're asking all, all our, our guests on this series of unicorn interviews. If you were to go back in time and speak to your old self. What guidance would you give about communications and what steps would you encourage yourself to take in order for you and your business to excel in communications? Uh, again, a, a really profound question, isn't it, really? And just having talked about no regrets and learnings and everything else and what I could have done better. And I'm afraid nothing revolutionary for your listeners and, and the rest. So honestly, from, from my perspective, I think two things in my own mind, and it's very easy when you're young and you're ambitious and you've got that drive and that's part of that enthusiasm to actually do it, is listening. Every good leader, exceptional leader in the rest, has got to be a good listener. And if you listen and you process and you analyse, I think you're much better. You know, you may have your own conviction and the rest, but in challenging yourself by listening, you'll undoubtedly do much better in terms of your arguments and, and the rest. So not that I don't think I didn't listen, but I would have listened even more in relation to those people that sort of matter. And you don't know who those are either. I think the second thing, which again, I'm passionate about, but I don't think I've, I've been good about, is decision-making. The procrastination and, and analysis paralysis. Get your best people together. Get all of those views, but make a decision and have the conviction to then change it if you're wrong and keep going. Old style, that was seen as a weakness, right? Again, you've seen the, in the leaders on the basis that people hate people changing their minds. You turn that in a, it's a tremendous weakness. I don't view it as such. If you know what you're doing, if you're incompetent, I don't know what you're talking about, that's a different issue. But if you have some idea, then you need to process and make decisions and be prepared and strong enough to change it and get better rather than no, I mustn't. I've got to stick in the mud. It'll be seen as a weakness. People help, help change. The world is moving so fast. The tech is, is moving so fast. You've got to be agile and admit when you're wrong and, and move it and change it and go again. 
So those would be the two things in terms of listening and, and speed of decision making. Tremendous. Uh, Charles McManus, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to join us online and, and chat to us today. Thanks, guys. There you go, Brendan. Uh, that's number eight in our uh, Unicorn series. Thoughts on what Charles had to say? I really enjoyed that. You know, we started the conversation talking about the UK's first clearing bank in 250 years and how, you know, they're building their business around like completely new infrastructure with no legacy. So you kind of got that whole innovation slump. But then as we kind of went through the conversation with Charles, what you really got is just how important leadership and culture are to actually enabling their business. And it's just kind of like the backbone of everything they do is all built around this culture that focuses on improvement, focuses on kind of like being open, everyone's opinion mattered. I just thought that was kind of a very valuable lesson for anyone who's trying to build a disruptive business that yes, it's okay to have the best technology and and things, but if you don't have the culture to enable your team and, and to kind of allow that to prosper, then you won't be successful. Yeah. Absolutely. Tremendous. Well, that's it for this uh, this eighth episode in the series with Taito. So if you want to find out more about ClearBank, uh, their website is very simply clear.bank. We'd love to hear your comments on today's chat and you can share them on our Facebook page, our LinkedIn, Instagram and Twitter feeds. They're all linked from the top of the, the uh, website at csuitepodcast.com uh, where you'll also find all our previous shows and supporting show notes plus links to where you can subscribe for automatic downloads of each episode via the likes of Spotify and Apple. And if you've uh, liked what you've heard, please do give us a positive rating and review. We're, of course, available on all podcast apps. Just search for the C-Suite podcast and hit subscribe. And don't forget, you can also subscribe to the Without Borders podcast from our partners at Taito. And all their details are on their website. And you can uh, find that at taitopr.com. Just click on the podcast link in the top nav bar. If you are a unicorn leader yourself and you'd like to be part of this series, please do get in touch via the contact form on the website at csuitepodcast.com. Of course, anyone can get in touch there with any feedback you may have. And finally, you can also reach me via Twitter using at Russ Goldsmith, or you can find me on LinkedIn. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye. Mm-hmm.